Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 67, Wild, From Lost to Found on the Pacific Crest Trail by Cheryl Strait. If your nerve deny you, go above your nerve. Emily Dickinson and Cheryl Strait. Sorry, you have to walk a thousand miles just to finish that sentence. Why do I have to walk a thousand miles? Happy trail, Cheryl. You get lonely. I'm lonelier in my real life than I am out here. Must have been some breakup, huh? Breakup is sort of a shorthand. How much do I love you? I miss you. God, I miss you. My mother was the love of my life. Come back! You're using heroin, and you're having sex with anyone who asks. Quit a bunch of stuff. Quit jobs, quit marriages. You regret any of them? I didn't have a choice. There's never been a time when there was a fork in my road. Here are some questions I've been asking myself. What if I forgive myself? What if I was sorry? But if I could go back in time, I wouldn't do a single thing differently. What if all those things I did were the things that got me here? Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Lace up your boots because this podcast is all about books and literature and hiking (laughs) for four months, I guess five technically. Uh, But each month, we take a thorough look at one particular piece of literature that we've both read, and we figure out whether it's worthy of its reputation and whether it can be considered required reading. So I'm here to act as our compass this episode, (laughs) and joining me, the Greg to my Cheryl, I think, is my good friend Tom Panneries. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think, I don't even know if we talked about this, do you think we could survive together hiking like a long distance? I think so, because I think we both are very good at, 
acknowledging when somebody needs space and quiet. <laughs> sure. Like yeah. I can picture because I'm I, I think you're kind of like me in that regard where like sometimes you just want to be quiet and work. Mm-hmm. And like you don't need the interaction of other people and you can kind of and I, I would imagine that hiking can be like that where like you don't need to talk through an entire hike um the entire way. I can be the same way. And then uh, especially on a on a treacherous hike I've hiked with my wife when we've, we've I like treacherous being like, you know, um, the Billy goat trail up in Maryland or, uh, the heck is that one in Shenandoah bear fence, um, where it's a lot of scrambling over rocks and you have to concentrate, right. You know, so that you don't lose your balance. And like, I know, I know enough. And, and my kid has learned this lesson to shut up while we're doing that so that we can concentrate. So I think, I think you and I are very attuned to that. And, and even when we get on each other's nerves, we know to take that step. So I think I <laughs> yeah. think we would be pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and we'll we'll certainly be talking about Cheryl because she enjoys being alone more often than with someone. But mm-hmm. I almost see us. I feel like we would very much be like our previous book in this short series we've accidentally (laughs) decided to do because I think one of us might speed ahead and then, you know, the other Mm. one might take their time and then we come together at at night and, and we commune and have fellowship time around the fire and then go to bed and then start over. So I can also see that kind of. Yeah. Although I think the difference in that one is that with cats, it was like he complained the whole way. I think you'd be ahead of me, I think, because you're just physically faster. Because <laughs> I am I am of that mentality. I'm like, you know, if we want to go from here to here on a trail, <clears throat> like, let's go. You know, I, like, I'm, I don't like to cut things short if I don't have to. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that you think we would survive. I think so, too. And yeah. I think we can take our space. So that's great yeah. to hear. Be a good bonding episode. It would. Uh, that should be our episode 70 is we take a long hike and we... <laughs> We audio capture it. Oh, you know, boy. that's not a bad idea. That would be, be really interesting. So we are, yeah, we're looking at Wild today. And this book, number one, you know, I decided kind of for Tom and I, or we, we came to a mutual agreement, but I was the one to ask to provoke the question. And so we're on this little segue and just looking at hiking books for the next now it'll be three episodes consider what counting this one and then our 70th will be a special and i thought about this one pretty shortly after starting my reread of walk in the woods and if there could be something that is the opposite of walk in the woods (laughs) this might very nearly be its opposite and at first i was just thinking superficially of well we will have a woman who is now the lead in our memoir and also her reasons for hiking i think are completely different than bill bryson's but i think we're going to be on a really interesting journey with this particular book today and i'm looking forward to, to talking about it yeah. What's your history with this memoir? Um, this is the second time I've read it. I had read it originally. It might have been around the time. It, I don't know if it was around the time it came out in hardcover or if the first time it came out in paperback. But somebody recommended it to my wife who read it and then recommended it to me. Um, so it was it was uh, I checked it out of the overdrive app 
in the library. Um, And uh, and I remember I have not seen the movie, uh, although I've heard of the movie. I'm really curious about the movie, but it was. But I did remember when you suggested this. um, You you asked me, would you mind if we read another book about hiking? And I said, is it wild? Because it was the only other book about (laughs) hiking that I knew existed, aside from the Canterbury Tales. And we're not going to do the Canterbury Tales right now. So um, so. I was like, and I remember liking it, you know, 20 years ago or so when it was, whenever I read it back in the day. And uh, so I checked it out again from um, the library uh, using the Overdrive ebook app and read it on my iPad. And well, well, uh, yeah, so that's my history. Absolutely. Yeah. And and hopefully, listeners, you picked up on the fact that Tom said not yet in regards to the Canterbury Tales. So I'm sure it's on his list somewhere. Not in the near future, though. Don't worry. Yeah. That's like a special all of its own. Either so, that or it's, or it's individual. <laughs> we'll just cover this tale. You know? Yeah. Anyway. There is a community college near Tom and I called Piedmont Community College. Piedmont of Virginia? PVCC. Yeah. yeah PVCC. Piedmont Virginia Community College. Yeah. And they would, I don't know if they still do it, especially because of COVID, of course, but they would host movie nights. Mm. Uh, at certain points and they were going to show wild and i feel like it was probably 2014 or 2015 and so my first experience of this novel is actually through that film and i went to go see it and i thought that it was a really provocative and impactful tale and then i did the opposite this doesn't often happen but i did the opposite and then read the book after i watched the film and of course you get way more out of it and and see some of i mean more of her travails and and mm-hmm. who the the emotions that she goes through and and the turmoil and everything and then so this is my second read through as well not as far spaced out i guess maybe seven or eight years ago I had read it but from what I remember of the film I recommend it I kind of want to rewatch it now that I had reread the book to see how it was I know that they made it a bit more sexier just to show like very quickly what Cheryl was up to uh, which made Reese Witherspoon apparently very uncomfortable but yeah so my second time just like you and and came at it at a different angle this doesn't often happen where i watch a film first and then i'm intrigued enough to to read the book so cool okay so let us get into the biography of miss cheryl schrade and i did get this from wikipedia and even now i'm looking over it and i'm wondering how much i really need to talk about in terms of man because there's there's a lot of trauma here as i'm kind of going through it um i feel like a lot of her bio is going to pop up in the synopsis so Schrade was born in spangler pennsylvania she is the second daughter of barbara ann aka bobby and ronald nyland and her father was not a big presence in her life. He was actually physically abusive towards her mother. So he left and then his mother, or sorry, her mother goes through some dating and ends up marrying again to a lovely man named Eddie. And he becomes a great father to Cheryl, her older sister, Karen, and her younger brother, Leaf. They kind of have some outdoor living. They they learn a lot from that, which I get into in the synopsis, that it's a big point in her upbringing. 
She graduates from McGregor High School in McGregor, Minnesota in 86. She was a track and cross-country runner, cheerleader, and homecoming queen. During the summer after her freshman year of college, Strayed worked as a newspaper reporter for her hometown county weekly, the Aitken Independent Age in Aitken, Minnesota. So she's beginning her writing career there. She loosely based the fictional Coal Trap County in her novel Torch on McGregor and Aitken County. She attended her freshman year of college at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, and her mother also attended college, kind of with her, with quotation marks. But by her sophomore year, she transferred to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, where she received her Bachelor of Arts degree, graduating magna cum laude with a double major in English and Women's Studies. And it takes her a while to get that because she did not turn in her final paper. In 91, so this is kind of the, I don't know, would you consider it a boiling point or just like the catalyst for this huge change in her life? When Cat- was, catalyst, catalyst is a good okay. word, yeah. When Strayed was a senior in college, her mother died suddenly of lung cancer at the age of 45. She was diagnosed and they were given her that specific time, you know, that time frame of you have so-and-so and then it just, she rapidly deteriorated. Soon afterward, Stray developed a heroin addiction. She's also sleeping around with men, having affairs, meeting adultery, I guess, apart from her husband. And Strayed has described this loss as her genesis story. So here you go. She has written about her mother's death and her grief in each of her books and several of her essays because she was really close with her mother. And she was kind of, she and Eddie were the point people that were with her mother for that entire time. Strayed worked as a waitress, youth advocate, political organizer, temporary office employee, and emergency medical technician throughout her 20s and early 30s while writing and often traveling around the United States. In 2002, she earned a Master of Fine Arts in Fiction Writing from Syracuse University, where she was mentored by writers George Saunders, Arthur Flowers, Mary Gateskill, and Mary Campanegro. And then, so that was from Wikipedia, from Lit Lovers, this was mostly about her work, so I thought I would go into that at least. So, Stray's essays have been uh, published in the Washington Post magazine, New York Times magazine, Vogue, Allure, and other imprints. Her work has been selected twice for inclusion in the Best American Essays for heroin, with and without an E, (laughs) in the 2000 edition and The Love of My Life in the 2003 edition. Torch, a story based on Strayed's mother's death from cancer at age 45, was a finalist for the Great Lakes Book Award and was selected by the Oregonian as one of the top 10 books of 2006 by writers living in the Pacific Northwest. Her memoir, of course, which we're talking about, has, uh, well, we know, optioned by actress (laughs) Reese Witherspoon, and it was also excerpted in Vogue on February 14th, 2012, Strayed came forward as the formerly anonymous author of the Dear Sugar advice column at the Rumpus Online Literary Magazine. Strayed took over the column from originator Steve Almond. That that must have been a change to go from a man to a woman. On July 10th in 2012, her new book, Tiny Beautiful Things, a compilation of her best and new Dear Sugar columns, will be released, well, was released, by Vintage Books. 
Some awards, her essay Monroe County about a letter from Alice Monroe was published in the Missouri Review and won a Pushcart Prize in 2010. Wilde was chosen in June 2012 as the inaugural selection for Oprah's Book Club 2.0, a relaunch of the famous Oprah's Book Club, which ended in 2011. And then, of course, Wilde, the 2014 film, was directed by Jean-Marc Vallée based on that autobiography. Oh, that's interesting that they called an autobiography because I kept calling it a memoir Um, and it stars Reese Witherspoon and as I even said here she had more trouble with the sex scenes than the hiking scenes apparently she called I was looking up some some trivia she called up Cheryl and was like what's going on with this and she said yeah and Cheryl told her yeah I was I was not very good back then so it's just very interesting okay I think that's it do you have any comments or things to say about the bio not off the top of my head. I'm just looking at John Mark Valet, by the way, directed uh, Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, I'm just trying to think of where I've also seen his name, as well as several episodes of the of Big Little Lies. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. And the also of Sharp Objects, which was oh, the oh uh, yeah yeah. See if there's anything else that I recognize. So that would be what you are what you are what would you probably would recognize yeah unless you have ever seen the music video for park avenue's song don't talk to strangers according to the imdb but i haven't yeah i have not it's interesting how he is directing these Mm -hmm. with the exception of dallas buyers club movies or films that are from the female perspective Mm -hmm. and often like traumatic as well sharp object yeah curious yeah you're curious what to a what a um oh uh, a, a female director would do with a piece like that well, like wild right like yeah. you know I, I have to I I'm I haven't seen the Reese Witherspoon movie I think I might go watch it if I can find it unfortunately like, I, I'm thinking of I, I don't I'm trying to think of like I don't know if Jane Campion would be a good one um. Patty Jenkins does action really well, but I'm like, you know, some of the, I think of female directors I keep to go to either have directed romantic comedies or they have directed uh, action flicks. I'm like, who would do drama really, really well? I guess you have a couple. <laughs> in that regard. I'm thinking of the, well, you know, Power of the Dog, mm-hmm. that director, or the Asian, the Asian director, uh, female. I feel like she might oh. be who. Um, what was she? Nomad, Nomad Land, right? No yeah. Land. Is it something zoo? And she had done, I think, the Eternals too. Yeah. Uh, Chloe Zhao. Zhao. Oh, so cool. Chloe Zhao. Yeah. Yeah. Nomad so, I mean, Land we, is sitting We've got in my some queue. of them. I feel like the indies, kind of. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, now I will do this really lengthy plot synopsis that I got from Grade Savers, and I try. <laughs> Sometimes I like to prep these episodes when I'm at work, and it would not let me go on Grade Savers at work because it blocked it saying plagiarism. There you go. <laughs> Which, thank you, hospital, but, I mean, how is that going to – what do you think I'm going to be using it for at the hospital? It's kind of crazy. The memoir opens with a scene from Cheryl's hike. 
It is the summer of 1995, and she has been on the trail for 38 days and has reached Northern California. In pain, she removes her hiking boots, and one of them accidentally falls off the mountain pass she is hiking. The moment causes her to reflect on how she got there. Cheryl is 26 with a painful family history. She is estranged from her father, and her mother is dead. Her relationship with her stepfather and siblings is shaky, and she has found it difficult to settle in any one place. She is now hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, which runs through California, Oregon, and Washington. The idea first came to her seven months earlier while she was working as a waitress in Minnesota. She happened across a guidebook to the Pacific Crest Trail and bought it on a whim, curious. Impulsively, Cheryl decided she would hike the trail. Cheryl traces the origins of her decision back to her mother's illness and death. More than four years earlier, when Cheryl was 22, her mother was diagnosed with lung cancer. Cheryl was shocked because her mother was only 45 and had always been very healthy. Cheryl recalls the day of her mother's diagnosis when she accompanied her mother and her stepfather, Eddie, to the clinic in Minnesota. The shock and grief were particularly intense because Cheryl had always had a close relationship with her mother. Cheryl is the oldest of three children with a sister named Karen and a younger brother named Leaf. Her mother, Bobby, got married at 19 while pregnant to a man who turned out to be abusive. She stayed with Cheryl's father until she was 28, at which time she left her husband and took her three young children with her. Bobby struggles to make ends meet for her children, but she remains positive and loving. When Cheryl is nine, Bobby meets Eddie, whom she falls in love with and marries. After the marriage, Bobby, Eddie, and the children buy a property of land in rural Minnesota where they live in rugged conditions. The family eventually moves into a home they have built themselves, and Cheryl sees the roots of her ability to survive in varied conditions originating in this childhood experience. She eventually goes on to college at a school called St. Thomas, and this experience awakens her mother's curiosity in higher education. Bobby ends up enrolling at college as well, and mother and daughter eventually transfer from St. Thomas to the University of Minnesota. They are both in their senior year when Bobby is diagnosed. Cheryl is living in Minneapolis and has married a man named Paul. Of all her siblings, Cheryl plays the most active role in caring for her mother during her illness. Her mother declines much more quickly than anyone anticipated, and Cheryl is frustrated by her brother's absence. On St. Patrick's Day, knowing her mother does not have much time left, Cheryl leaves the hospital to go and look for him. She tracks down Leaf, and the two of them arrive at the hospital the next morning to learn that their mother died an hour earlier. In June 1995, before she begins her hike, Cheryl visits Minneapolis to see her mother's grave. From there, she drives to Portland, where she leaves a set of boxes that her friend will mail to predetermined stops along the trail. Cheryl then flies from Portland to Los Angeles and drives to the town of Mojave, where she will begin her hike. Cheryl checks into a motel room in Mojave, feeling lonely. Her relationship with Eddie declined after her mother's death, and she is now divorced from Paul. A few weeks after her mother's death, Paul had been accepted into graduate school in New York. Cheryl was unwilling to leave Minnesota since she felt her family needed her, so they deferred the offer. However, Cheryl had also started to kiss other men. When they moved to New York in 92, she vowed to focus on being faithful. However, Paul quickly dropped out of his program, and they ended up going on a long road trip. In the spring of 93, they found themselves in Portland, where they both got jobs in restaurants, and Cheryl tried to stop seeing other men. Only a few months later, Paul returned to Minneapolis to work, leaving Cheryl in Oregon, where she began having full-blown affairs. In the winter of 94, three years after her mother's death, she finally told Paul what has been happening. The two of them separated without a clear plan of what would happen next. Lonely and frustrated, Cheryl agreed to return to Portland to visit her friend Lisa. In the summer of 94, Cheryl drove alone from Minneapolis to Portland. 
Cheryl is concerned because she lacks previous backpacking experience. She has done her best to prepare, but when she gets dressed for her first day on the trail, she realizes she cannot lift her pack because it is so heavy. She plans to spend about 100 days walking to her destination of Ashland, Oregon. Cheryl is filled with trepidation, but she is fiercely determined as she sets off. Cheryl faces her first obstacle as soon as she leaves the Motel Mojave. She has to hitch a ride to get to the trailhead. Two men pick her up and she fumbles through the embarrassment of dealing with her heavy backpack. Cheryl feels a sense of pride and elation as she sets off, but she quickly realizes how difficult it is to hike in the hot and dry conditions while carrying a heavy pack. As she walks, Cheryl thinks back to December of 94. She and her friend Amy were in South Dakota to retrieve Cheryl's truck, and she went to an outdoor supply store to buy a snow shovel. While there, she saw a Pacific Crest Trail guidebook for the first time, but she didn't think much of it. However, later that day, Cheryl began to suspect that she might be pregnant. The father of her child was Joe a man Cheryl met in Portland in the summer. Shortly after she and Joe had begun sleeping together, he had introduced her to heroin. Lisa had tried to intervene, but Cheryl had brushed off her concerns. Lisa had then called Paul and told him what was happening, so Paul went to Portland. At first, Cheryl had been resistant to him intervening in her life, but later that day, she was robbed at knife point. Shaken, Cheryl had abruptly left Portland and returned to Minneapolis with Paul in late September of 94. A week later, Joe had gone to visit her. During his visit, Cheryl had slept with him and also done heroin. She had intended to turn her life around when he gone, so she was surprised to realize she was pregnant. Driving back to Minneapolis, Cheryl grieved over everything that had happened since her mother's death. As soon as she arrived, Cheryl bought a copy of the guidebook and began preparations for her hike. Cheryl has brought the guidebook with her on the hike, but looking through it on the trail just makes her more nervous. She has also brought a book about using a compass, a book of poetry by Adrian Rich, and a Faulkner novel. On her first day on the trail, Cheryl pitches her tent early. She sets off the morning of the second day, planning to hike the remaining 13 miles to her first water source at Golden Oak Springs. However, she realizes the terrain is more challenging than she expected, the weather is unpredictable, and she is making much slower progress than she anticipated. She also faces the embarrassment challenge of finding herself unable to dig the hole she had planned to defecate in. Cheryl reaches Golden Oak Springs on day three of her hike. She refills her water supply and then lingers there. She reflects on how only two days before beginning her hike she had taken heroin with Joe in Portland. Cheryl is in pain but begins day four feeling hopeful when she leaves Golden Oak Springs. New obstacles emerge. She falls and injures her leg and she has to climb over a number of fallen trees. On day five on the trail she is frightened by an encounter with the moose. Oh! She is averaging about 9 miles per day and is concerned about this slower pace. On day 8, Cheryl assesses her food supply. Her next stop is in Kennedy Meadows, where she'll have a supply box, 135 miles away. Her stove is also not working because she put the wrong fuel in, so she can't eat any food that requires preparation. Cheryl decides to leave the trail and head in the direction of the highway she knows runs parallel to the trail. She begins following a jeep road and eventually comes across three men. They're preparing to dynamite blast a mountain as part of a mining operation. One of the men, Frank, agrees to take Cheryl back to his place so she can spend the night there and repair her stove. During the drive with Frank, Cheryl becomes nervous and tells a lie that her husband Paul is waiting for her in 
Kennedy Meadows, even though she has been divorced since April. She and Paul Martha are divorced by getting matching tattoos of a horse. At Frank's home, she meets his wife, Annette, and gratefully eats dinner. Cheryl recalls that she technically never completed her college degree since she was too grief-stricken to write a final English essay. The next morning, Frank leaves Cheryl on the highway to hitchhike to a town called Ridgeway. She is picked up by a man named Troy, who delivers chips, and he takes her to an outdoor supply store. After getting her stove repaired, Cheryl decides to stay in Ridgeway for the night, and she checks into a motel. The clerk at the hotel tells Cheryl that the Sierra Nevada mountains still have a lot of snow, which is worrying news to Cheryl. Nevertheless, the next day she returns to the trail when she gets a ride to Walker Pass. She has to cover 52 miles to Kennedy Meadows and 16 to her next water source. As she hikes, the conditions become more difficult with Cheryl encountering rock slides and blistering heat. By the time she arrives at the next water source, Spanish Needle Creek, Cheryl has decided to quit. She plans to walk to the next road and then veer off the trail and follow the road until she finds someone to give her a ride. However, before she arrives at the road, she runs into a fellow hiker named Greg. Greg is much better prepared than Cheryl and is encouraging to her. He is concerned about the unusually snowy conditions, but he is hopeful. He's going to be spending a few days in Kennedy Meadows, and he tells Cheryl that he will catch up with her there so they can formulate a plan. After they part ways, Cheryl decides to continue with the hike. As Cheryl continues to hike towards Kennedy Meadows, she thinks about the ice axe that is awaiting her in her supply box and how she does not actually know how to use it. She also encounters her first bear on the trail. On the morning of day 14, the day she is scheduled to reach Kennedy Meadows, Cheryl encounters two hikers named Albert and Matt. She thinks about how she adopted her new last name of Strayed after her divorce was finalized and how it now symbolizes her wandering ways. Cheryl married Paul when she was 19 and the two of them lived an adventurous and happy life into her mother's illness. She still feels sad when she thinks about the end of the marriage. When Cheryl arrives at Kennedy Meadows, she retrieves her box from the general store and also receives a postcard from Joe. She has the good fortune to find a ski pole that is being given away, and she takes it with her. Cheryl arrives at the nearby campground and meets a man named Ed, who tells her that Greg, Matt, and Albert have already arrived. Happy to be reunited, Cheryl enjoys a good meal. She is delighted to receive new clothes and books in her supply box, but she is concerned about the weight of her pack. Albert offers to help her weed out some of the items she's carrying, and Cheryl is embarrassed when he finds the condoms she has been carrying. However, she is delighted to have a lighter pack. At the campsite, Cheryl meets two hikers named Tom and Doug, who have been hiking just a bit behind her and know her name from the trail registers. Cheryl is relieved that, like her, they don't seem to be seasoned hikers. Together, all the hikers discuss how to deal with the unusually snowy conditions, but Cheryl is determined to see if she can hike through the mountains. Greg teaches her how to use the ice axe. Unfortunately, Matt and Albert have fallen ill and have to abandon their hike. Cheryl plans to resume her hike with Tom and Doug, and Greg is likely to catch up to her on the trail. Before she leaves the camp, ground, Cheryl realizes that someone has taken the condoms she removed from her pack. She put them in a kind of a grab-and-go box or take what you need and leave what you can. Cheryl only hikes a very short distance with Tom and Doug before sending them on ahead because she wants to be alone. She's now in her third week on the trail. It's late June, and she is ascending into the Sierra Mountain Range. She camps with the two men that night, but she hikes alone the next day. When Cheryl first encounters a patch of snow and ice, it becomes apparent to her that she will have to get off the trail at Trail Pass and bypass the highest and snowy part of the PCT. She tells Tom and Doug about her decision that night and her plan to go to Sierra City and rejoin the trail there. The two men discourage 
discourage her from going off alone, but she insists. Cheryl thinks about how her plans will change by bypassing the High Sierra. She decides that she can now hike all of Oregon. Her new endpoint is the Bridge of the Gods on the border of Oregon and Washington. When Cheryl runs into Greg the next day, he tells her he is also bypassing. The two of them get off the trail at Trail Pass and hitchhike to a town called Lone Pine. Cheryl contacts Lisa to explain about the rerouting. Cheryl and Greg realize that in order to get to Sierra City, they will have to take a Greyhound bus to Reno and then another bus to Truckee before hitchhiking to Sierra City. On the bus, Cheryl counts her money, becoming more and more worried. She will not receive more money until her next supply box in Beldentown, 96 miles away from Sierra City, and she does not think she can afford a motel in Sierra City. She and Greg arrive in Truckee, but they have a hard time getting a ride to Sierra City. When they finally do, they check into a motel. Cheryl is relieved to clean up, but she is disconcerted about the state of her body. When she tells Greg that she is losing toenails, he tells her that her boots must be too small. That night, as Cheryl lies in her bed, she thinks about the time she met with a counselor named Vince to talk about her relationships with men. Cheryl recalls the pain of growing up with an inconsistent and abusive father. Nonetheless, Cheryl was sad when her parents divorced because she knew it meant she would lose contact with her father. Cheryl leaves her room and instead of knocking on Greg's door, she takes a long bath. Outside of Sierra City, Cheryl and Greg rejoin the trail in part ways. She is concerned because that stretch of trail is still very snowy, and she becomes disoriented and sure of whether she is still in the PCT. Cheryl briefly considers returning to Sierra City and bypassing even further, but she decides to stay on the trail. Four days after leaving Sierra City, Cheryl has covered 43 miles and has another 55 miles left to go before reaching Belden Town. She knows she will run out of supplies and finds the snowy conditions unbearable, so when she comes to a road, she veers off the trail and heads for a town called Quincy. Along the road, she is picked up by a car headed to Packer Lake Lodge. She accepts the ride even though Packer Lake is in the wrong direction. When she arrives in Packer Lake, Cheryl also only has 60 cents because she has spent most of her money in Sierra City. At the lodge, a woman named Christine learns about Cheryl's journey and invites her back to the cabin where she's staying with her family. They give Cheryl a meal and suggest that she take a book with her. Cheryl is drawn to a novel by James Mishner, who was her mother's favorite author. Christine drives Cheryl to the Quincy Ranger Station, but they don't have any useful information about where to rejoin the PCT. Cheryl gets a ride with a group of young women to a point where the trail intersects with the road. On the drive, she thinks about her stepfather and how well he had gotten along with Cheryl and her siblings when he first started seeing her mother. However, within a short time after their mother's death, he had distanced himself and begun a new relationship. When Cheryl is dropped off, she's disappointed to realize she will have to walk almost two miles before rejoining the PCT. It's late in the day, and Cheryl decides to camp for the night. However, she's woken up in the night by campground owners insisting that she has to pay if she wants to stay there. Cheryl is forced to hike in the night towards the trail. She makes camp only a short ways off and thinks about her mother's beloved horse, Lady. Bobby had purchased Lady when Cheryl was six, just after finally leaving Cheryl's father. Lady and a second horse eventually lived on the rural Minneapolis property, but when Cheryl visited in December of 93, years after her mother's death, she realized that Lady was elderly and ill. Cheryl and Eddie debated whether to pay a veterinarian to put her down or to shoot her in themselves, and Eddie agreed to handle it. However, when Cheryl and Paul came back on Christmas Eve, Lady was still there. After speaking with her grandfather, Cheryl called her brother and Leaf drove out to help. On the day after Christmas, Cheryl, Paul, and Leaf 
took Lady out to shoot her, but the process was more grotesque and prolonged than Cheryl anticipated. After the horse was dead, Leaf suggested that the spirit of their mother might now be able to pass into the next world. The next morning on her current journey, Cheryl is still hesitant to return to the snowy PCT. She decides to walk back through the campground and along to Bucks Lake before rejoining the PCT at Three Lakes. At Three Lakes, Cheryl meets a group of friendly men who listen to her talk about the trail. One of them gives her a Bob Marley t-shirt. The next day, Cheryl continues on to the PCT towards Belden Town. Despite challenging trail conditions, Cheryl reaches Belden and collects her box. She also meets two other women hiking the PCT, Trina and Stacy. The three women camp together and they are joined by another hiker, a man named Brent. From this group, Cheryl learns that Greg grew frustrated by the snowy conditions and quit the hike. That night, the hikers decide on their route to accommodate this continuing snow. They'll use a combination of roads in the PCT for the next 50 miles and then bypass a particularly treacherous section by hitchhiking before returning to the PCT at Old Station. Cheryl's next resupply box is 154 miles away in MacArthur Burney Falls State Park. Before she goes to bed that night, Cheryl writes a letter to Joe and stargazes with Brent, reflecting on how far she's come and the journey that still lies ahead. Cheryl continues on with Stacy and Trina covering the 50 miles to Stover Camp where they part ways to hitchhike. As Cheryl tries to catch a ride, she meets a man named Jimmy Carter, no relation, who tells her that he writes about the hobo life and asks her questions about her journey. Despite being annoyed, Cheryl's pleased when he gives her a can of beer and some food. Cheryl ends up being picked up by a woman named Lou and two men named Spider and Dave who are brothers. Lou is going to be married to Dave soon and she tells Cheryl that five years ago she lost her son in a car accident. They drive Cheryl to the old station where she reunites with Stacy and Trina. Cheryl is pleased to hear that a new water tank has recently been installed about 15 miles away, which should alleviate the need for her to carry large amounts of water on the trail. Trina and Stacy set off, but Cheryl stays an extra day, feeling more confident now that her pace has improved. Cheryl thinks about the idea of becoming a writer and impulsively phones Paul, telling him about her adventures on the trail. The next morning, Cheryl resumes her hike, facing intense heat as she hikes over Hat Creek Rim. The heat leads her to quickly deplete her water supply, so she is relieved when she encounters the water tank where she is scheduled to refill. However, she is dismayed to realize that the water tank is empty. Desperate, she heads towards a reservoir known to have water of questionable quality. Cheryl purifies the water from the reservoir and drinks it, waking up to tiny frogs crawling all over her. She sets off the next day in a weekend condition and doesn't make much progress. She detours off the trail to a general store in a town called Castle, where she chats with a fellow hiker named Rex. He tells her that if her boots are too small, she can ask the company to send her, REI being the company, to send her new ones. The next day, Cheryl hikes the rest of the way to MacArthur Bernie Falls Memorial State Park, where she picks up her resupply box and phones to arrange to have new boots sent to her. Cheryl is initially happy with her plan, but she becomes concerned as she waits for the boots to arrive since the delay risks affecting her progress on the trail. When she learns it will be five days before she can have the boots, she asks them to be sent to her next stop, resigning herself to hiking the next stretch in her ill-fitting boots. Frustrated, Cheryl thinks about a prediction an astrologer once made about her needing to fight a battle in order to heal a wound left by her father. As Cheryl walks the next day, she thinks about the history of the trail and the dedication of those who work to make it possible for her to be hiking it. 
As she approaches Castle Cracks, Cheryl sits down to rest on the edge of a slope and accidentally knocks one of her boots off the edge. So this is the beginning. She now has to continue in only her sandals. Continuing on, she recalls how, before she began her hike, she had driven to see Eddie and visit her mother's grave on the rural property. She arrived during a party and was greeted by her brother, only to be upset seeing the old kitchen table being carved on by party guests. She and Leaf reminisce together, reflecting on what life might look like after she finishes hiking the trail. They also visited an abandoned house nearby that they used to sneak into as children. On the trail, Cheryl continues her hike, concerned because she's feeling disoriented and lost. Her sandals have also fallen apart, so she is now hiking in foot coverings for makeshift duct tape. Finally arriving at Castle Crag, Cheryl picks up her resupply box, her new boots, and letters that have been forwarded to her during her time hiking. She also reunites with some of the hikers she had met earlier on the trail, and they all camp together that night. The next day, Cheryl is annoyed to find that her new boots still hurt her feet. Because of her difficult experience on the trail, Cheryl is eager to take a few days off and spend them at the Rainbow Gathering, a festival. However, the hikers can't locate the Rainbow Gathering, even though they come across other hippies looking for it as well. She crosses paths with a woman named Vera, who is hiking with a small boy named Kyle, but she is mostly alone, and and I think they have a an alpaca or a llama there. As Cheryl approaches the border of California and Oregon, after more than 50 days on the trail, she realizes that she is finally feeling stronger and more confident. Cheryl crosses the border from California into Oregon, feeling triumphant. She is eager to arrive in Ashland because she has put additional money in the box she will pick up there, along with regular clothes. However, when she arrives, she is dismayed to find that the box is not there. A strange atmosphere also hangs over the town since the death of Jerry Garcia has just been announced. Cheryl is invited a number of times to gatherings to celebrate his life, but she is focused on retrieving her box. Once she has it, she checks into a hostel with fellow hiker Stacy and Stacy's friend Dee. After resting and eating, they decide to go to the Grateful Dead Memorial Gathering where Cheryl meets a man named Jonathan. He invites her to come back to the club the next night to join him. Cheryl and Jonathan listen to music at the club and make plans for her to see his home later that night. She steps outside while waiting for him to finish working and she meets a man named Clyde who is living in his truck. She gets in the the truck and passes some time with Clyde. They drink some tea, uh, who offers her also some chewable opium. After a while, Cheryl rejoins Jonathan and they drive to the farm where he is living and working. He and Cheryl talk, kiss, and finally go to his tent where Cheryl is startled to find that he doesn't have any condoms. And she left her own back at the hostel because she feared Jonathan might find her unattractive and she wanted to resist the temptation to sleep with him. Nonetheless, Cheryl spends the night and the next day she and Jonathan go to the beach. Cheryl slips off by herself to write Paul's name in the sand knowing it will be the last time she commemorates him this way. Later, Cheryl and Jonathan make love on the beach before returning to town because he had gathered some condoms. The next day, Cheryl resumes her hike headed towards Crater Lake National Park. As Cheryl hikes through Oregon, she notices changes in the terrain and temperature. On August 18th, her mother's birthday, she thinks about how her mother would have been turning 50. She recalls her mother's personality and the decision to cremate her. While most of her mother's ashes had been spread on their property in Minnesota, Cheryl had consumed a handful of them. Consumed. Cheryl also reflects on how, when she was pregnant, her projected due date was the week of her mother's death. And I should say that she did get an abortion before she started hiking. I mean, basically right after she found out she was pregnant. At Shelter Cove Resort, Cheryl picks up another supply box and meets a group of hikers who have been walking just behind her on the trail. They are three handsome young men whom she nicknames the Young Bucks. 
They push past Cheryl on the trail, maintaining a faster pace, and she continues through Oregon alone. One day on a detour from the PCT, she meets two hunters who ask her for water. She offers to let them use their filter to clean pond water, but they end up breaking it. Growing increasingly uncomfortable, Cheryl lies and says she plans to hike on before setting up camp, and the men leave. A few minutes later, they come back and are angry when it becomes clear that she lied about her plan to move on. I should say only one man was angry about it. The other one came back to find and wondered why that guy had come back. So one was sketchier than the other. They eventually leave, but Cheryl is so unsettled that she packs up all her things and starts walking again. In Olali Lake, Cheryl retrieves another box and reunites with the three bucks. The three of them camp together before off before being offered a space in a cabin at the resort. Cheryl is also joined by her friend Lisa, who has driven out from Portland. Before she leaves Olali Lake, Cheryl also runs into Doug. They agree to hike together for a stretch, although Cheryl wants to finish her hike alone. About 50 miles away from the Bridge of the Gods, Cheryl breaks off alone. Early on a Friday morning, she walks into the town of Cascade Locks, located on the Oregon side of the bridge, which spans the Columbia River and marks the border between Washington and Oregon. Cheryl pauses to savor the moment, knowing she is only a short distance from Portland, where she plans to stay indefinitely. A man offers to drive her, but she declines, wanting to reflect. Cheryl does not yet know that her future will involve a happy marriage and two children, including a daughter whom she will name after her mother. She does know that her experience on the trail has changed her forever. Okay, thank you for enduring that plot synopsis <laughs> with us. <laughs> so the first one of the big questions is, of course, Tom, did you like Wild? I did. I liked it the first time, and I, I remember liking it quite a bit the first time I read it. And so when you go back and read something like this after a very long stretch, because it's been uh, like a very long time since I read it, you get a little worried, right? Because you're like, is it going to be as good as I remember? It's like watching an old movie. And uh, no, this this holds up incredibly well. You know, it, it doesn't feel dated. Yeah. Because sometimes, like, you know, you read stories like this, and all of a sudden there's references or there's behaviors that are just references that are dated behaviors that are problematic in the way that, like, you know, we don't act like that now, or at least we like to pretend. Um, <laughs> that None of that happens here. It's really it, – it holds up really, really well. And it's it's intriguing and like really compelling, you know. I really like a walk into the a walk, a walk in the woods, mm-hmm. for its funniness, for for its um, kind of knowledge of the Appalachian Trail, the local references into this. This is a tremendously better story. It, it's really fascinating with the history of the Pacific Crest Trail, which I had not known about until I read the book the first time. But I would say I, I think I enjoy – I mean it's a totally different book, so I can't say I looked this better, but this is like really, really compelling, and, and I really, really liked it. Absolutely, and I think it it's it pairs well with A Walk in the Woods because A Walk in the Woods is lighter. I mean there's mm-hmm. certainly moments of gravitas mm-hmm. that, you know, I think about when cats got lost, that was worrisome, or the, the discussion of the, the people who have gotten killed when he was basically passing yeah. through. But here it's really heavy. It's really heavy with everything that she's gone through. And there are moments that break through certainly of levity, especially when she meets – some of these people and and you can tell kind of that weight of trauma is lifted a bit but it really is a woman that is working through grief on this trail and that grief is with her in monster in her backpack as she is traveling so we don't there's no space for history which a walk in the woods was 
rife with history, right, on, on mm-hmm. the Appalachian Trail. But this one, I think there's just no space for it. And there are times that she does have some segues and talks about the origin of the trail and things like that. But I'm fine with that. I, I don't even know. There was no question that you asked that prompted that answer. But I just went off what you were talking about. I also really liked it. It is one that it takes me longer to read because I can usually read 50 pages in an hour, but it depends on mm-hmm. the genre. But this one, I really slowed down, and I think it was just so impactful. Hopefully I'm using that correctly, Tom. So impactful on me, and you really get into it. And just also, uh, you know, I feel a kindred spirit just, just having a, a woman author and, and seeing these struggles that she's going through. So I enjoyed it the first time. I yeah, Obviously the movie was compelling enough to get me to read the book and then reading it again and talking about it I was just super excited for it so so here we are so I wanted to begin I guess kind of at the beginning but kind of near the end and so the beginning of the book begins with (laughs) her sitting and her boot falls off of an edge, and then in anger, she throws her other boot off. <laughs> and you think, oh, no, is this the beginning? But then she goes backwards. And so we don't see that scene again until, in my copy, which is a hardback copy from the library, page 209. So nearly, I would say, two-thirds of the way through or yeah. so. And I just want, you know, why use this particular point in her journey as the hook to begin the book? There's something really cinematic about it. Like I can I can picture this in my head of the scene of this happening and then all of a sudden we flash back and then we come back around to this. Um so maybe maybe it was just this is a moment of high drama, mm. high struggle. You know, th- there's a sense of when we finally get to that point, there's this real sense of desperation in there. So she's she's it's it is one of her lowest points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it's just I think she just does it to tease us sort of like and and just hit us right away with like this is going to be really, really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think it also creates tension and suspense. Do you think anyone goes into it underestimating this woman? I would imagine so, uh, especially the people who look at her. Obviously, she's she, my impression is that sure. like I'm picturing Reese Witherspoon. I really don't have a point of reference for Cheryl Strait, especially. But I would imagine she sounds like she's very much of the same physique uh, based on the way they all seem to be like concerned about how heavy her pack is. Yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing is, is like you go into the hike after she's told all of this stuff about her and you're like skeptical mm-hmm. that she's going to make it, that she's even going to make it through the first leg. Right. And maybe showing her that far along at the beginning and then passing back, like helps you stay with her in a sense. Like, because if you were to start with like the real beginning when her mom dies and her marriage is destroyed, like it's just, it's a it's just gut punch after gut punch after gut punch in her life. It might be hard for you to keep going. <laughs> Honestly, because some people might be like, well, I thought this book was about hiking. Um, And then other people might be like, I don't know how much of I could take this. So I guess if you know a little bit about what's going to happen, that 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 keeps you that keeps you into it. Yeah, I 
I mean, it's so compelling because you don't know where she is. So I I think I imagine that she's in the middle of nowhere. It's not like she's at the beginning of, you know, at a trailhead. She can easily get off. Yeah. And in fact, she has she has lost one and she has purposely lost the other. I'm just like, well, how is she going to get out of this one kind of thing? So it's very – it really does hook you. And I think you have two options, obviously, being that per- – you can't just sit there and wither and die. She can either go back or go forward. And I think she's always at that crossroads of where does she mm-hmm. go. And the strength of her is, is that she does keep pushing onwards no matter how hard it is. Uh, and, and I think you're right that it is – a pretty low point there the boots have been her enemy for the entirety of the hike and she's been losing toenails because they they were too small and she even has like this running little tag of you know me versus my boots and six five and oh now it's yeah now that the boots have won it so and even once she is told that REI gives new boots, then that's a whole thing because she can't wait for these boots and they're taking entirely too long. So, I, yeah, I think it's it's a compelling image that w- don't start off with a triumphant image because even though there is triumph at the very end and you kind of get a hope of, um, you know, she touches the bridge of the gods that she was looking for and there is a future that she that, that Cheryl doesn't know yet, but there's something special there. I think because 90% of this novel is about her struggles, we need to, I think she needed to start off with a struggle and show like it's going to get real in this book. And so mm-hmm. start off right with that. Yeah. And I, I liked the point you made about how you hit the middle of something like that. And you have, when you have a point of frustration or stress or a setback and you're in the middle of a journey like that, Sometimes the fact that you're so far along already is the only thing that keeps you going. Like, especially like a physical journey like that. Like, I'm a mile into a two mile hike, and all of a sudden, I, I don't know, sprained my ankle. I, I twisted my ankle or whatever, and I've got to get out of here. Or I just, I've got to get out of here. But guess what? Like, I might as well finish yeah. because that's my. What else am I going to do? I'm at the halfway point, you know, or mm-hmm. something. So something like that. It's like you know, I, I have no choice but to keep going, or I could sit here and wither. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Which I wouldn't be surprised if she considered not not to make light of it, um, but you know, I would imagine that at a very desperate point, you would think of that. Absolutely, yeah. I think there are moments where it's like you know that tree. Um, when she, some of the wildlife frightening her, like, you know, what if I yeah. just stayed here and, and, and died? And I think to a certain extent, some of the low points, I feel like maybe death would have been a mercy to her, yeah. um, joining her mother potentially. She's been having a rough time, but yeah, this, you know, she may look slight, blonde, fair, you know, a, a waspy sort of creature, but Given her upbringing and everything, she is no what is it wilting wallflower? Is that what they no. call them? <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. So even yeah, there are definitely things stacked against her, and I think womanhood and femininity we always have things against us anyways. But just mm-hmm. her upbringing, I think it's completely different if Cheryl had been from 
you know, Beverly Hills and was living it up in style. But she had been, you know, hand to mouth kind of earning earning money and, and struggling through and then again living in these weird outdoor conditions and finally building a house and everything. So she at least had some of this in her blood. Yeah. But again, she's working through some emotional trauma too. So it's not just this physical stuff that she's working through. Yeah, true. Uh, the next question is that I and I, I want to read actually just uh, an excerpt on page ninety five again for me. But okay. I wonder, just I guess as an existential question, I don't know. But do you think it's critical that we personally and just human beings find and do hard things? And so I'm going to read this passage just because it really spoke to me. I stopped in my tracks when that thought came into mind. That hike in the PCT was the hardest thing I'd ever done. Immediately, I amended the thought. Watching my mother die and having to live without her, that was the hardest thing I'd ever done. Leaving Paul and destroying our marriage and life as I knew it for the simple and inexplicable reasons that I felt I had to, that had been hard as well. But hiking the PCT was hard in a different way, in a way that made the other hardest things the tiniest bit less hard. It was strange but true, and perhaps I'd known it in some way from the very beginning. Perhaps the impulse to purchase the PCT guidebook months before had been a primal grab for a cure, for the threat of my life that had been severed. I just found that just a really powerful paragraph mm -hmm. that she has written there. But yeah, what do you think? Do you think that as humans, it's just we can't, we shouldn't be lazy because then we just become stagnant, that we should always strive to find something that will challenge us so that we in turn grow? And, and perhaps in Cheryl's model, maybe in finding something that's harder, it can make other things uh, that have really hurt us or, you know, brought us down our journey less hard. Yeah, I think that because I, I think of things that are hard, not just physically, but mentally, intellectually, right? So finding and doing hard things or doing things that you know are going to be challenging because you've never tried them before or they're not, quote, in your wheelhouse, right? I think it's very critical that we do that. I think it's part of what makes us human, you know, is, is, it's part of, part of like who we are, I think, in a general, in a general way. I think if you always stuck with only doing the safe thing or only doing, or always sticking to your, your niche or always sticking to like, oh, this is what I'm good at, I, I would get boring after a while. And this is some, this is coming from somebody who has been historically risk averse, but even then, like, I do like, to do, I think you are compelled to do things that are challenging. Yeah. We certainly talk ourselves out of challenges all the time, which is another part of human nature. Yeah. And, and I think as teachers, we also encourage students to pr pursue challenging things academically and really yes. use that word grit, right? Just the fact that they can do hard things. We don't want them to shut down yeah. when they encounter something that's difficult, but to try to work through it as best yeah. as they can. And I think that it, it really is just a developmental, um, mm -hmm. a, a character building activity. Yeah. Sure. Or take the challenge for my students, take the challenge of taking the class that is not in your expertise. Mm -hmm. You know, so, I, yeah, I know you're I know you're not you're not going to use an art history class in your engineering career, but it's so enriching. It's so enlightening. Like, you know, I know that, you know, you might not write fiction, for, but give it a try, like because it's the because of the challenge and that sort of thing. Okay. So, yeah. Well, each section of the book 
opens with a literary quote or two, which is great because, of course, she brings books along. Which, <laughs> can I just say that having her rip books up and use them as fuel, but also to cut down on the weight, was a bit heartbreaking to me. But I'm <laughs> glad that she also recognizes, like, it was heartbreaking for her. And we'll talk about that. I think I have a question yeah. about the one yes, that she, she does not burn up. But anyways... Uh, these literary quotes are too. What do they tell you about what's to come in the pages that follow? And for an example, how does Strade's pairing of Adrian mm. Rich and Joni Mitchell on page 45, which is for part two, how does that provide insight into her way of thinking is just uh, as an example? I'm going to punt this back to you. <laughs> I don't have it. Well, I don't have, I don't have my copy in front of me. Oh, it's, like, oh, okay. So I'm trying to remember um, beyond just kind of the general way authors tend to do that. I think it just kind of provides some sort of foreshadowing or something, but I don't, I can't give you a specific example. No, I, I would agree. I, I think the big thing about in particular that section, because I, I think she is, really intentional about choosing this not to say that other authors aren't intentional but in mm -hmm. this section which is another question i want to get to at some point she actually goes into her name change and so the fact that Joni Mitchell, well, Adrian Rich is saying the words are purposes, the words are maps, and then Joni Mitchell saying, will you take me as I am, will you, I think gets into this question of identity. And this is also the section where it's, you know, talking about the hardest things and everything. So I think she, she pairs them well. And I think they do get to some moments where she's really inward thinking. So it's not just kind of a superficial, oh, I saw a... a moose on the on the trail today <laughs> so that's why that's from but something that she had discovered about herself yeah okay i i would say i mean tom's not here to now yeah. <laughs> tom has punted it so i could be right i could be wrong yeah, no, no I, one will I, know I, like i said i'm sorry if i had this is this is the uh no, this is one of the drawbacks <laughs> of 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 checking out an ebook from the library and also having your notes stop uh, on an ipad okay. But at least now I know that you had an ebook. So if you have any page numbers you want to throw out to me, I can always flip for you. So let me know. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess we'll talk about Strayed as a character in her own work. <laughs> and I do want to pair it to religion, but that's it's kind of a personal, personal question. There. So, okay. So Strayed is quite forthright in her description of her own transgressions. And while she's remorseful, she never seems ashamed. Is this a sign of strength or a character flaw? Can it be both? I think it can. Would you like to explain? I, I, well, <laughs> Claim like, I, just, commentary? I, that, I think that her... I don't even I, I don't even want to use character flaws a great great phrase, but there's so much trauma and acting out that brings about the character flaw or, or reveals the character flaw that's behind some of the transgressions, especially like the infidelity in her marriage and the and then her addictions and things like that. It's it's not like this came out of the blue, you know she draws she's very very good at drawing a straight line from like these are the things that have happened to me and clearly you know even for an armchair psychologist you can kind of see how she is um connecting to like this is how i this is the act of self-sabotage because a lot of it is self-sabotage but at the same time her lack of guilt over it or her lack of shame i think is a strength 
um, because there is remorse, right? You know, she, she, she's not callous about it, but she doesn't feel that she has to go around wearing, to use a cliche allusion to another novel, a red A on her chest <laughs> for the rest what of her life, which is what, be? which is like, so, which is what we, it's, which is what our culture tends to do with women mm. who make these sort of, or have the sort of transgressions that Strayed has cheating on her husband, um, doing drugs, you know, just, um, those, those sorts of things. And she got an abortion at one point, yep. I believe too, you know, and like, so, and, and again, I'm, you know, and I'm not going to bring I'm not going to bring that debate in here, but um, but there is a like she she could be readily stigmatized, and women women who go through or do the things that she does are easily stigmatized in our society, and she shows remorse for those things that she considers to be bad, and even has very deep and very genuine thoughts and feelings about them. But she does. I like the fact that she does not turn around and say, "I'm like that." She doesn't turn around and feel the need to constantly apologize for something that she's already dealt with or already felt the remorse for. You know. I, I think there's there's not space in the novel for that too. No, but I mean, I think it's a strength in her character. It's yeah. like you know, for if, if you were to walk up to her and try to start shaming her for cheating on her husband thirty years ago, because there were people who will do that to people. Who will never let those things go. And, and I like the fact that she can because it's like, no, I have to move on as a person. And I think it's also very, I mean, in a way, and again, white male, I think it's very feminist mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. I mean, in this if, if in this day and age, I'm sure if she were on the Twitter, someone would like go digging through her tweets and be like, "Remember that time that Cheryl Strayed oh, cheated on her husband?" I need. Uh, we both need to get off that hell site. But yes. <laughs> So I yeah I I totally agree with you Tom I think I think you said it really well I I will say that if she were ashamed quite sim- simply it wouldn't be in this book and yeah. then what was kind of the point of it because if she's not honest with with herself about these transgressions right then there's no coming going forward and and putting all that behind her and becoming this stronger um, human this stronger Cheryl. So mm-hmm. I, I think you're absolutely right that she shows remorse. We see in that in those passages with her and Paul and just how hard that was and how she always he's always I think somewhere on her mind. You know, it's it's Paul and her mother always with her on the trail, and so we see that. So I I, I agree. I think also you can't be. Uh, I feel like it was probably emotional at the time. So I, I think maybe it's better to have a I don't not necessarily lack of emotion, but just be very sort of clinical in, you know, listing out some of these things that have happened because there is a can of worms with Mm. with with the abortion scene. Um, And, you know, whatever your take is on that, that that was her decision in the moment. Mm -hmm. And um, she was not in a good place. And she just like that she could not have provided for and so she decided that that is what she was going to go and do yeah. and you, you, I, I think she just can't get emotional in that uh, particular moment and also I think a lot of her emotion it has been it was spent you know on her mother and it's hard to divide feelings like that so yeah I like I I, I 
I guess it sounds weird to say this, but I like that she is flawed because, you know, some of these people with memoirs might be touted as this like amazing human being. And that's, we're all fallen human beings and we all have these flaws. And so to have someone who really puts it out there, there's no window dressing about it. She's not pussyfooting around like this is who I was. This is where I came from and, and that journey. Um, and there's, you know, trauma in her past to explain explain some of these things as well. I, I think it is very admirable. So mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that, you know, as, as from one woman looking to, to another one. Um, not saying that, you know, I condone those actions, but I'm just saying <laughs> that I appreciate that she is very honest and forthright about that. So I don't even know how to ask this question, but one person that I knew was reading this book, I don't think that this person has seen the actual film, was, I don't want to say like disgusted, but she was uh, uncomfortable. I don't know. She didn't like it, I think, because it really did chafe against her religious beliefs and everything. And, well, I can totally say, I mean, if you take the abortion, for example, you know, that would be a prime one or just like how she behaves. But I almost feel like that's kind of uh, a short-sighted look at it or you're not really getting you know, looking, we're looking past what we have just talked about her flaws and her remorse and and things like that. But I feel like, um, even though Cheryl uses the lowercase G and doesn't really talk about God too much, that there's a lot of spiritual aspects to this novel. So I guess that's my, my question. Um, even though there might not be like religion as such in it, and there might be troubling passages, I feel like people can learn a lot and there is a lot of spiritual spirituality spiritual aspects to it i don't know if there's a question in there i just wanted to talk about i wondered what your thoughts were on it and i can give you some examples of what i have seen if you would like but do do you think that maybe people can can find if you're like if you're a christian and struggling with some of the things that she does shouldn't you still be able to maybe look past that and, and see some spiritual aspects to it and that it's still a worthwhile piece of literature and, and memoir? Or do you think it just is going to be really hard for maybe a hard, hard-lined Christian to read this? Well, if you're, if you're turned off by that and you find it disgusting or whatever, aren't you just being sanctimonious? <laughs> I suppose I mean, so. isn't there a whole thing about, you know, not being judgmental in that way? I mean... I think there is something uh, granted, then again, like even if I think of like 19th, like the 19th century literary, literary movement of transcendentalism and the whole idea of, of, you know, you go back to like Emerson and Thoreau and communing with nature and et cetera. And I'm simplifying for a lot for the sake of brevity here. There's something spiritual in that. There's something, there was something even spiritual in a walk in the woods, you know, like yeah. where you are connecting with something and, I, I, I don't think you need – you can find capital G God in, in in something like this, certainly, especially if you have those pre-existing beliefs. But take the Christi- take your Christianity out of it. You still find evidence of something greater than you mm-hmm. in this. And whether that's God or whether that's nature or whether that is something all-powerful that you cannot comprehend or are questioning – even reading this, there felt like there was something bigger than her and that she was many things. I think the grief was bigger than her. Right. 
and the trail certainly is bigger than her. So it's, it's confronting some of those things head on. It's, you know, having those, the either literal or figurative dialogues with it. So yeah, I think there's, a, there's an aspect of spirituality. And I like the fact that it's not, it's us as the reader finding it as she finds it, as opposed to being lectured at or mm-hmm. sermonized at, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So feel and, free and, to share some of those examples too. Oh, well, I guess all the people she meets, with the exception mm-hmm. of the, the two sketches, <sighs> and which I think one of my questions is, were you ever scared for her? So <laughs> we can Ooh. talk about that. Yeah. And the people who kicked her out of the camp at night. People go out of their way to help Cheryl. Mm-hmm. And the people she meets on the trail are just so lovely that there's just something really powerful and special about that. Or the fact that she is running low on funds and she's able to make it on 60 cents. I know. Or, you know, the hitchhiking that has helped out. I know there was that moment with the fox that she felt like it was her mother that uh, was watching her. Yeah. The Bob Marley t-shirt I, I thought was pretty special. So I feel like there's, there's a lot there, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. And be, she, given her reckless behavior, I think she's also, she was protected from a lot worse uh, given, given some of the, the things that she's doing. And I also think, you know, again, we're all flawed human beings and, and we have seen people, you know, have these dark, lifestyles and then come out of it and and i don't know be a priest or a pastor or something like that so you can't ever judge someone from it so i think it very much is about the journey and and seeing where she comes from and i think there are these really beautiful moments of spirituality that come through and i totally understand why she you know cuts the the big g down to a little g because of how she's just so angry with what happened to her mother and and some people you know do go through that grief and the big question you know working at a christian school for 10 years is you know if there's a god why does he allow suffering in the world and so I I totally get it i totally get it but um i i hope that people you know whatever their religiosity that they they would give this a chance and and not automatically sort of pass her off um or brush her off i guess is the the right phrase because she goes through so much and i think she grows as Mm -hmm. a person and and we see again those beautiful moments well well, there's a lot of empowerment in this book too Mm -hmm. right like you know it's not just you know some of the things she does actually are pretty empowering and yes she makes mistakes but again it's like like again, if there's some there's something sanctimonious about like calling those things out when she when she clearly is acknowledging that too. Like it's not like she's not aware of who she is and mm-hmm. and and the, the mistakes she has made and, and the things she has done and, and she again she doesn't owe, she doesn't know she doesn't owe the reading her apology and that's a, going back to that previous question. Um, so she shouldn't owe anybody an apology because their religious beliefs are, you know, they get, they get triggered by that. I think, I mean, the big word is grace, of course, you know, what is the (laughs) role of grace and that you're not extending grace to her for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That was just a personal thing because I just remember that from years ago. 
Okay, uh, talking about fear. So she says on page 51, I knew that if I allowed fear to overtake me, my journey was doomed. Fear to a great extent is born of a story we tell ourselves, and so I chose to tell myself a different story from the one women are told. So fear is a major theme in the book. <laughs> Do you think that trade was, these are kind of extremes here, too afraid or not afraid enough? And were there any moments that you were afraid for her? I think the moment I was most afraid for her was you just mentioned it, oh, the yeah. two hunters. Yep. Funny thing is, is on the trail by herself, I think I was a little nervous for her and her, I, I mean, granted, she came back to, to write the book, so I knew she wasn't going to die out there. But I was a little worried for her safety at times, but I always felt a little more secure when, because like, I felt like she knew what she was doing. As, even though she would totally admit to you she didn't know what she was doing, like, you know, like the, the whole hike, tech, the technical hiking aspects, like she makes a lot of mistakes, which are so relatable because you can be prepared as hell for something like this and everything will go completely sideways. But that, that was scary with those two, those two hunters, especially the way the one guy was just a little too lascivious in the way he was approaching her. And I was just like, Molly, you in danger girl, you know, get out of there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then did you answer whether she was too afraid or not afraid enough? I don't know. Because the cynic in me says she wasn't afraid enough. I read books like this or I read uh, – I was just reading a book that I'm not going to be choosing for this, but I might bring up in our episode 70 uh, called The Walk Across America by Peter Jenkins. And um, that was back in – he wrote that back in the 70s. And I was reading it, reading his encounters with people and going – in this day and age with how polarized our country has become and how polarized citizens have become, I don't know if you'd be able to have the interactions that you have. Mm. And that did seep in sometimes. But at the same time, this community that he's a part of, that she's a part of, this hiking community, we've seen it here and we saw it in Walk of the Woods too. There is a sense of camaraderie and looking out for one another. Like I don't think I've met a mean person on a trail, you know? Yeah. I probably met some pushy people, but <laughs> for the most part, the people, the people who I've come across when doing my little in and out morning hike type of things who seem to have experience or at least they have equipment with them have always been nice. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's just and, and I, I think that it's just kind of that whole like that, that that thing about travel, how it how it gives you that perspective and everything. So none of the people who, with the exception of a couple people here and there, like you said, the people who kicked her out of the campsite, most of them were very welcoming and had a good perspective because they, they, I don't know, they'd experienced something or whatever. They had that decency. So I think that's where I think that she didn't need to be too afraid um, at many, many points. Yeah. But I, I like her point about how, if she allowed the fear to overtake her, her journey was doomed. And that could have either been in the way of just being absolutely scared or the I'm afraid. So I'm going to start making excuses as to why I'm going to quit type of fear. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to get back to here. Like, you know, the, the excuses we make when we really want to do something really risky, but we're like, oh, you know, do I get the time off work or how am I going to make money? Like all of the all the ways we've been trained to not take those risks 
And um, and then again, I choose to tell my different myself a different story from the one women are told. Again, that's another thing. It's just like that empowerment piece, mm-hmm. you know, like the whole thing, you can't do this or you should be careful. What's a little thing like you doing out here and all of the sexist cliches I can think of. Right. And it's like, no, I can't think about that because that's not going to that's not going to be helpful. Yeah, like literally fear is paralyzing. It just yeah, stops yeah. you. Yeah. And it's again going back to a couple points ago that I made. You know, you can either <laughs> go forward or go back and so mm-hmm. she just always pr- proceeded forward even though there were there were scary things there. And I think just like doing hard things is good for us. I think it's good as long as we're like checking ourselves. I'm not asking you to do crazy stuff. But, you know, to to be out of our comfort zone and that could be anything you know that could be going to a foreign country where people do not look like you uh-huh. um, so i i think that that is character building once again so uh i think th- it's both right i i think there were times that she was really afraid but not so afraid that she stopped and didn't move on and then yeah maybe there were some times that she wasn't afraid enough or she was trusting i think just overall when i read that you know way back when when i started my rory gilmore's reading list i think the road by jack kerouac was one of the first books that i had read and i was just imagining myself like i i can never do this like you know hitchhiking and doing that kind of yeah. thing because i i just don't trust it so that's one of those things of like she really just she goes out and i think there's always a sense when there's a man there there's always that what if like i think frank was his name who had the twizzlers in the truck um Mm -hmm. it's like oh what's this guy going you know up to uh and then of course the hikers i was absolutely afraid for her and and also astounded that it took that long for her to get in that situation which was you know certainly a blessing uh but i'm I'm glad she made it out of there and i'm trying to think if there's something else oh yeah just about really being someone who initially was underestimated just like perhaps in a meta way the readers underestimate her but i think there's one moment where people had taken bets on when she was going to arrive or something and then she yeah. says oh well who won and she said and he said none of us because i guess they didn't think she was going to make it it all yeah yeah so you know everyone's astounded because you're looking at these trail logs and you're seeing this woman and they're like oh who is this and everything and mm-hmm. yeah so she's she certainly defies it and in a positive way because this like i said this book seems to be the natural opposite of the yin to the yang of of walking the woods but the, woods. the only woman we really encountered was their annoying little cohort <laughs> whose name i can't mary even remember mary ellen yeah mary and, and all of these people are delightful that she encounters you know so that's also very interesting and mary ellen yeah she kind of gives uh ooh, a negative connotation to someone on the trail who d- should not be on the trail because cheryl from first glance should not be on the trail mm-hmm. Overpacking, clearly inexperienced but she yeah is just the polar opposite of of mary ellen so I'm glad, yeah, I think fear is just a natural part of our journey. I mean, we could bring up Plato, of course, and and just talk about what fortitude really is. And it's not the absence of fear. It's Mm -hmm. having fear 
and reconciling with it, struggling with it, and having a proper output of it, and you know, still having that fear, but but performing courageously and not running off. So I, I think she certainly has fortitude as a virtue. So she is she's not all filled with vices, listeners. <laughs> uh, yeah. So if we continue on this male female relationship, we'll just talk about some of this. So she encounters mostly men, with the exception of Tracy and and Trina. How does this work in her favor? What role does gender play when removed from the usual structure of society? And as a follow-up question, so I've got like a bazillion, of course, I always do this to you. What was it about Strayed that inspired the generosity of so many strangers on the PCT? Do you think it was the simple fact that she was an attractive female? And of course, the young bucks end up giving her her trail name near the very end of uh, the queen of the PCT because people do give her so much. <laughs> free things like they're with her and they're like and then someone uh, says hey we've got this cabin that you can have so lots of stuff going on in that question tackle it however you want i don't know if the attractive female or them underestimating her because she's a female which with the with the sexism built into that is the reason I don't want to say it's a reason she she is she is so helped, but I think it certainly does help, especially because they do underestimate her, and there's almost like a like almost like a paying of respect, at least with some of them, where they're like uh, sometimes it's genuinely surprised that they're they're made them that far, but then it's just like if she keeps going and everything, and not not that like she's Davy Crockett or Daniel Boone and her legend grows as she keeps going or something <laughs> or some Paul Bunyan crap but but really there is like if word of mouth spreads about her there are respect grows for her and it's because of the beginning she was so underestimated and it's because she is you know she's not she's not a she's not a trail bro and she's not um she is she is uh, not the typical hiker, right? So I think part of that ha- part of that does work in her favor. I, it's interesting to see how you remove everything from the usual structure of society, and some of the vestiges of that structure still remain as far as men and women, etc. You know, mm-hmm. it's because some of the like she she uh, sleeps with the one guy, uh, you know, um, and that's very. It's, that's just very small town vacation or small town America. There's something about that, right? You know, as opposed to on this trail away from civilization. So she can't completely escape society. But at the same time, I think that's, I kind of think that's what she needed anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, because to completely escape it would be to run away in a way that's not constructive, but she's adjacent to it enough at some times that she gains she continues to gain the perspective that she needs about it but um i i like the fact that she and i know you have a question about um sex and intimacy early on yeah she does comment here and there about like you know her own appearance and how it's changed over the course of uh her time you know like musculature skin tone because yep. she you know, she's obviously you know um, leg hair. Uh, <laughs> and getting that uh, chicken skin, is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, she's a kind of sinewy, you know, and whatever. And she's just like, she does kind of have this, I think it's a passing thought here and there of like the standard definition of femininity having not necessarily, she not fitting that necessarily by the end of the thing because she, because of the way it has physically changed her. Mm-hmm. 
there's also the like the way she allows us to see some very um, unattractive aspects of herself, both personally and and physically as well. And um, so I kind of like that. But uh, but it is interesting how she does bring up she brings up sex and she brings up um, how some of the guys obviously are a little attracted to her, but she again is empowered enough to not feel that she has to owe them something. Yeah. And 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 they take that signal with the exception of that one dude they uh, the uh, the hunter guys they, they they take that signal and they are they seem to be fine with that and i i respect that a lot too what do you think it is about her and and now this is this might be inappropriate because obviously we'd be speaking for her trying to figure out who cheryl is mm-hmm. but what is her relationship with sex do you think because we even see it, I, we can go all the way back with her affairs, but when she's in the Mojave and that hotel, she was considering going out and picking somebody up. And yeah, there are those moments, there's a flash of recognition and attraction before she sort of tampers it down. Is it to fill a vo- I mean, is it kind of the, mm. the filling the void situation? Um, she is young. I mean, she's what twenty four, twenty six when she's yeah, on there. Yeah, she's in so, her I mean, 20s. Sex drive is active, but do you oh, think yeah. there's is there something deeper about it, like what she's using sex for? I think there is a certain amount of I'm sowing my oats, especially since she's coming out of that marriage. Yeah. Granted, she you know did cheat on her husband, but um, and she's also there might be a little filling her void because you know she is in the middle of grief. Yeah, I don't know from that sort of grief. You know, I don't know if it's just I want to feel something, so this is what I'll get. Um, who knows what her hormones are doing at the moment? You know, I, there, there's like a, a million different like angles you can take this, and I think both positive and negative because I also think she felt she felt kind of boss, you know, like yeah. like yeah, and and I can totally see it too. Yeah, it is, and again, just being very open about that too, you know, not mm-hmm. hiding that those were feelings that she was yeah. having. I liked that. I do. Yeah, I think that yeah. it, you know, we've done memoirs on this show before, of course, and we always, I, or often at least, question how reliable that narrator is. And I think when you have someone who is willing to show the ugliest part of her, why wouldn't you believe, you know, the most mm. beautiful part of it and everything? So I, I think in those unlikable qualities that she shows us, uh, she gains my trust almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's another thing that, that I really like about Cheryl and this work. I will say before I get into this, since we are talking about women, that and, – and there's a reason why I'm talking about it with Tom – is that she goes into – something I love. It's going to be so bizarre to, for me to say this and for you guys to hear it. But I love that she talks about how she has her period on the trail and mm-hmm. what she had to deal with to do with that. The reason why I'm talking about it with Tom is that this is the second time that Tom <laughs> and I have encountered it. It's not. It doesn't come up very often. Uh, Tom and I did a special on his show, which I highly recommend, Paper Girls. And I think we took some time to actually talk about the fact that one of the the characters actually has her period for the first time. And it's like super dramatic because 
you know, they're in this crazy sequence like, and also it's like prehistoric era or something. Yeah. And her friend's like, you're yeah. bleeding. So it seems like yeah. really horrific, but we don't, we don't in, you know, literature. Uh, well, I guess it depends on the literature, but in pop culture, we don't talk about it cause it's like taboo for whatever reason. So just the fact that we had a woman and she doesn't skip over the fact that she's got a poop cause she doesn't have, she does struggle a bit making her <laughs> like first hole, but also that, yeah, she has, her period on the trail and what that would be like because that is actually something that I've wondered about because when you asked me you know last episode you know would you ever go on one yeah absolutely but also I wonder what is that like because you are you know you've got this blood what are you dealing with it how are you doing with it what about the animals so to have her have that moment I thought was was really great and anyone who gets whatever grossed out or feels like you shouldn't be talking about that Man, I only have negative words for you. Well, but <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, do you have anything to say about that section? Well, I think I think of most of the context in which, in which menstruation is used in our popular culture, and a lot of times it's done for you know some cheap manner. You on your period? Why are you being yeah. such a bitch? Yeah. Sort of comment uh, sometimes, or, or it's or it's the opening scene of Carrie. <laughs> Plug oh, it up, yeah. plug it up. Yeah. Um, so it's never really treated, and sometimes in, in shows that are geared toward young women, it is treated with the respect that it deserves because they're trying to show a point about how it's not, you know, taboo, discuss- or you shouldn't be ashamed of it. I'm sure that, you know, it can be, um, you know, I know it can be very painful. The The matter-of-factness of it here is something I really appreciate. Right, yep. Right? I mean, I've been married for almost almost 20 years at this point. So it doesn't phase me, you know, like I've been living with a woman since for the last 22, you know? So, so, uh, you know, I, I, this is something I don't feel, I feel comfortable talking about. Right. Sure. Cause it's just like, you know, I'm like, yeah, like this is something that happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I know. Seriously. It is. It's something that happens. I don't know why people yeah. get all freaked out about well, it. It's just, it's kind of along the lines of like, you know, do characters in movies go to the bathroom, right? Like, <laughs> let's the road. Do, do, does, does Luke Skywalker have to pee? And like, you know, and, um, and so like with this, it, yeah, it is really interesting. And you're getting into that because you know, Bryson and Katz are both guys. Right? So they didn't really yeah. approach the, the topic and I didn't expect them to. But yeah, you do start to think about it. And then you, I do start to wonder because at one point they were talking about, um, at one point they do talk about, uh, bodily functions in that regard with some of the other hikers and she makes like a mental note that i i can't remember if she had actually stopped getting her period at one point or she hadn't actually had a bowel movement at one point because like she's just that dehydrated or yeah. something it, it's yeah. i don't if i had a copy in front of me but she does talk about how like one of them it might have been it might have been the, it might have been number two that she hadn't done anything in a while um because she you really wasn't eating a lot and stuff like that. But I do wonder if, 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 uh, and that is actually something, and maybe somebody who has a better understanding of, of anatomy and biology would tell me, is it kind of like if you're doing something like this and it's, this is months worth of work, right? Mm-hmm. That you become like kind of like one of those gymnasts who stop getting their periods because yeah. they've been training so hard. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I bet. Yeah, I bet. Would yeah. you actually stop getting it because of the way you are? reconditioning your body in some way or another because despite her propensity for eating cheeseburgers here and there you do eat a lot of like you are eating 
your calorie intake on a trail like this is significantly less mm -hmm. than your output yeah. when you're hiking. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that would affect your cycle. What, yeah. what do you think? No, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah, the nutritional aspect, I think, is definitely going to, to cut you down. Well, then how much do you pack, too? Like, you're packing for this, and you're – let's say you are tracking your periods, right, like on an app or something. So you know that, like, if you're predictable enough – Yeah. And let's say you're going to start – let's say you're doing a summer hike. So you're starting on Memorial Day, and you're going to end the Labor Day. And you know that you're going to have three menstrual cycles – I know uh, like a, a pad and a tampon don't exactly weigh you down in a purse, but three months of it, how much weight is that? Like, do you have to take that to account? Are they light enough or what's the accessibility of those things? Like I, I just, I, I not being a woman, I don't know the logistics of this. Yeah. Well, she, you're not going to use that because those have to be thrown away and you can't uh -huh. really throw them in the wild. So she uses a sponge and okay. there, there are other things that you could use that are like reusable. Okay. But the issue with, or like the the danger of those, but really that that's what you got to do is that um, you could get what is it, sepsis? Like um, an infection. Right? Yeah. So you just have to be really careful and cautious about cleaning them out. And of course, we've seen that the the fact that she has to pump the water and drop iodine tablets sometimes you're like mm -hmm. well am i going to clean out the sponge that is then going to go up uh with that yeah, sort of water so you have to be which you know she can boil water and things like that but yeah you're probably not going to bring tampons and pads unless mm -hmm. it were like a, a short hike and you could deal with the the waste but also Let's be honest, it, it smells, so I don't think you want it with you. So yeah. probably the sponge or one of those uh, reusable devices is going to be the way to go. That is really interesting. But, but yeah, Super is awkward because she even talks about how she was shoving the sponge up and like moments later someone had – she had encountered someone on the trail. Yeah. <laughs> because it's not like, yeah, it's not an easy task. Like you've got your pants are at your ankles in order to, you know, get enough. Yeah, I can basically. I can stuff. imagine you are in a similar position as if you are going to the bathroom. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So crazy. But I, again, do you think we like <laughs> made a whole slew of our audience uncomfortable? Um, but again, you know, I'm just happy that, that you talked about it, frankly. Yeah, no, it's just, again, it's like being this frank about it. It shouldn't be refreshing, but it is refreshing, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and it just, it makes it, it makes it so real. And as a male, it's not something I would have thought about, right? Mm -hmm. I certainly would have thought about the, uh, the, um, uh, what to use for toilet paper and, yeah. <laughs> and, and digging the hole for that. Um, and then, and then would have wondered about the dehydration and like how often I would have been doing these things. Like, and, and that aspect of it probably depending on like my time at the time of day, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's not something I ever thought about. So like to, to think of, to, to have that thought put in my head and then like have her kind of walk you through what she did. I really appreciated that. Absolutely. And I think it destigmatizes it a little bit too. I think, yeah. Again, and be, yeah. I think a lot of it is her delivery. Like I said, very clinical. So yeah, it wasn't like really dramatic. And she, oh yeah, she yeah. She didn't skip over it because then I'd be like, "What yeah. did you ever?" Yeah. yeah. 
as an aside, because we know that Paper Girls is coming out on Amazon, for uh-huh. some reason I'll be like super disappointed if they don't show that scene because I think it really is a powerful scene. And I it, would these be girls too. are twelve and thirteen, so it makes sense. I would be too, and then I would imagine the portion of the audience losing their crap. <laughs> like like I can see I can see the Twitter the Twitter the Twitter explosions over the fact that they oh they showed a thirteen year old girl getting her period like uh yeah yeah I'm looking forward to Paper Girls <laughs> so we we got off track a bit but it was yeah. definitely you know being a woman and I thought that it was uh, powerful yeah. I you know you spoke really well on that particular question I also think it's not just the simple fact that she is an attractive female I think there is some maybe deep seated someone could say misogyny i almost wonder like chivalry because a lot i mean Mm. these gentlemen i i call them gentlemen i think you know the young bucks doug Mm -hmm. greg albert like those people they're really kind so i think maybe just helping people out i think they would help anyone out she just happens to be female i think the the time that her looks come into play of course are with that guy i don't was his name jimmy um or the the forest ranger who is also Mm -hmm. a bit of a skis i have to say not as skeezy as um the hunter, but he, that was a bit, I'm glad that the young bucks were with her. I think you're right. I I think this is what you said that the structure of society isn't completely, uh, or the trail isn't completely devoid of the structure of society. Um, because you still do have male female relationships and, and, you know, sexual drive and attraction and things like that. But I almost wonder if it's like almost a utopian vision of what society could be like because you are without almost power structures, you know, in like Mm -hmm. the corporate world and things like that. And people are relating to each other as equals because I don't see people talking down to her. Yes, they underestimate her, but once they get to know her, I think they're just traveling companions. It's almost like devoid of sex to a certain extent. Um, so I thought there, there was a lot of beauty in there and at least from her perspective, you know, and how she's portraying it, it doesn't seem like until she gets off the trail, I think we do see that again, but on the trail, it just seems like this really, um, beautiful society, uh, where male and female are more or less equal. And Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think there are just sometimes there are people that have really attractive qualities that bring other people to them. And so I think Cheryl is just that type of person and people were willing to give her a bunch of stuff. So uh, based on the way she writes, I she strikes me as somebody who is who is quite charismatic. Yeah. Someone you'd want to be friends with in real life. Or at least or at least even if you don't end up being friends with them, at least spend time with them. You know, yeah, absolutely. Yep. So we'll I'll do names now. I was kind of waiting for this. Uh, Tom, you and I have talked about the power of names. Mm-hmm. Our, was that our first episode? No. Was that our third episode? I know why the cage bird sings. I think that was episode three. Yeah. Yeah. So we we talk about it all the time. You and I, I think, know how powerful names are. Uh, let's see. Page 96. She talks about it. She actually changes her name because, well, she and Paul get divorced and she takes on this last name of Strayed that wasn't her actual maiden name or anything. I guess, what do you think about this name that she takes on? I'll ask that. And then, what did you think when you learned she had assigned this word to herself and that it was no coincidence? Part of you is like, hey, that's a little on the nose. (laughs) But she did it in her she divorced Paul like they got divorced like what she was in her early to mid 20s right I mean yep. 
it, it, it tracks with that because it because you know you're early to mid twenties. You're just after your teenage years, so now you're basically a teenager with a little bit more life experience to you. So you might either take everything so seriously, you take yourself seriously, and you're kind of, you're kind of a you're kind of up your own rear end anyway. So, or at least that's what I remember 22, 23, 24 being. So yeah, it kind of tracks. Um, it fit. Yeah, it's a little too on the nose, and it it fits. It's a good little nom nom de plume. It didn't take me out of the book or anything like that, though. No, yeah. Um, I'll read the passage. It was also funny when her friend, I can't remember who it was that made it for her, but makes a necklace, but the Y looks like a V, so many people see it, and (laughs) it looks like she says starved. Starved. (laughs) Yeah, and Cheryl's like, well, it fits, and people find that amusing. Strayed came into her mind, and she looks it up in, in, or looks up its definition, and she finds to wander from the proper path, to deviate from the direct course, to be lost, to become wild, to be without a mother or father, to be without a home, to move about aimlessly in search of something, to diverge or digress. I had diverged, digressed, and wandered and become wild. I didn't embrace the word as my new name because it defined negative aspects of my circumstances or life, but because even in my darkest days, those very days in which I was naming myself, I saw the power of the darkness, saw that, in fact, I had strayed and that I was astray and that from the wild places my strain had brought me, I knew things I couldn't have known before. I think you're right about, you know, being on the nose and it works really well with her relationship with Paul, where she is right now on the PCT. But I also just think it's really beautiful that she named herself. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt like it was a good turning point of her kind of taking ownership of her life. And um, just like she says, this book or this trip is the genesis of things, that that also is, is part of it as well. So I thought that was pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Okay. Uh, so talking about Wild, uh, she writes that the point of the PCT had only to do with how it felt to be in the wild, with what it was like to walk for miles for no reason other than to witness the accumulation of trees and meadows, mountains and deserts, streams and rocks, rivers and grasses, sunrises and sunsets. How does this sensation help Stray to find her way back into the world beyond the wilderness? I like the love the way that's phrased. I think this has to do with grief. Mm. Um, you know, she is still grieving her mother and her marriage. And you said this was, you know, and she, well, you said that she had said this was the genesis of, of something. Mm-hmm. But she has, the genesis is something after the terminus of something else. So up until the point of the hike, everything had been about end, right? It had been about, the finishing it had been about things falling apart and uh, this idea that you just the accumulation of trees and meadows and mountains and deserts like that idea that you she's accumulating experiences and she's accumulating moments in life from this point on so she'll take that into the world with her and she'll accumulate some more which is the which is like a growth in the rebirth, you know. If I mm-hmm. just metaphorically, I'm probably being butchering it, but <laughs> um, but like you know, having having juxtaposing it with what had come before, which was a terminus, which was an end. I think it's really really appropriate and, and actually pretty profound. Pretty profound. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of spirituality in this situation as well. I think mm-hmm. there are. 
Uh, I love uh, some trails that are around me. There's a trail around you, the Pretty Creek, that I really love as well. And I really like to listen to podcasts or audiobooks when I'm doing it, but there's also something very special about not having any of that and just being in the wild and experiencing what that has to offer for you. And I think you absolutely are right that I think it's the way to get past her grief because if she were still in Portland or Minneapolis, there would be all these things of the world encroaching in and she just would have no space, I think, to work through that grief, which we saw. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. been four years since her mother has passed away and she has not really, I think, wrestled with that grief because and all these things are moving in on her you know paul uh you've got the heroine and and joe and all that and jobs and thing and there's nothing but here she's got space to wrestle with it and the only her only companions i think is is nature so she can finally kind of work with that grief not necessarily get past it because i think grief may be something that we always uh hold on with us Mm -hmm. but there aren't these worldly distractions and so i think once she can get to just be alone with herself and with nature she's able to get back into the world and perhaps be stronger for it i find it interesting that you'll listen to podcasts while you're hiking in the woods because i've always been of the mindset that like those distractions are away from me even driving into a national park i turn the i turn the radio off Mm. And I'm just like, I I don't know. I want the ambient noise. Yeah. I find it very meditative. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a spirituality to it. And, and like, so even even if I hear some highway noise in the background, um, there's just the, I, yeah, I find it very centering. Yet when I'm walking like on a trail around here, which are paved trails around my subdivision, I will totally listen to podcasts and stuff where I'm doing like street walking and stuff like that. Yeah. Which is not the way to phrase that word, um, but walking <laughs> on paved. Walking. Yes, I'm not. No, I'm not doing that. Um, yeah. But like you know, walking paved hey, trails. Hey, look them up, people. We've got our own red light district around us. Yeah, but um, but yeah, just being out in nature, the meditative aspect of it. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, if I go on actual hike hikes, just you know, in my defense, I do definitely unplug. Um, mm-hmm. When I come back, I probably would not be listening to something. But um, yeah. Okay, so just two more questions. We'll talk about the books now because, of course, this is a literature podcast. But to lighten her load, Strayed burns each book as she reads it. Why doesn't she burn the Adrian Rich collection? And if you want to, we can also connect that that final question just about what role do books and reading play in this solitary journey? I know that with the, with the second one, I know there's at least the one book, the Michener book, Space, that connects her, I believe, her to her mother. Yeah. And I remember her talking about, I think it was like a college professor or a teacher or somebody who had like kind of scoffed at her mm-hmm. reading it, which back in the day, I would have been like that, you know, because, um, you know, there was a there's a point in college where like you're, you're led to believe things have quote literary merit. And yet now I'm like, wait a second, (laughs) you know, I like I shouldn't apologize for wanting to read like, you know, Star Trek, The Lost Years, but uh, or Space by James Michener and stuff like that. So I I like how that has that connection. That's another way to connect to her mother. I don't advocate the burning of books, but (laughs) but, I'm not a fascist, but um, there is something 
obviously like there's something practical here. She's not just burning them for the sake of burning them. She's using them as like kindling in right. in campfires and stuff. So I'm like, okay, I can see the practicality of that. But at the same time, there's something really cathartic about it too. Mm. Um, I don't know why she doesn't burn the, uh, my memory is, is shot here. I can't remember why she doesn't burn the Adrian Rich book. I, that one, she, she knows it so well. She said she's reread it so many times. She has many of the poems memorized. Maybe she feels like it's part of her. Probably. I think she also read it to her mother in her deathbed, so I can mm. only imagine that it is a really strong connection um, to her and to her mother, and there's just something yeah special about it that perhaps we, we just can't quantify her name. I, I I like that she has brought books. I, I think it, it just speaks to her. I mean, she was an English major, right? That was her thing. It, it yeah. almost felt like a Tom and Stella situation <laughs> where we've got our lists, right? And so she was yeah. going through some of these books that she had read before, for sure. And I'm so happy that she had Flannery O'Connor. That's She's one of my favorites. I, but, I do enjoy Flannery O'Connor yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, I love her short stories. So, uh, yeah, you kind of get a i don't know a trip through literature like his you know the history of mm-hmm. literature as we're also going on this trip with yeah. her so it's it's this journey yeah. i yeah whoo uh the burning yeah it does make me really uncomfortable i understand why she's doing it on two practical level, levels obviously the the kindling and then lightening the load mm-hmm. and I think this is she does prefer to be alone that that's a, something that we hadn't really talked about but even though she may camp with people or start off walking with people she'll kind of leave, let them go ahead because she needs to be alone and, and take her space and I think this might be a way because you, I I think as human beings we always seek some sort of fellowship and I think this is a way for her to fellowship as, as she's on her own, that she's mm-hmm. able to commune with those words and those authors as well. So I think it, it adds a dimension there. Yeah. I think if we were to do this, we would, I feel like we would coordinate at least a few selections of books that we brought because we would end up sharing. <laughs> That's true. Like, yeah, like thought. we would, we would, swap books at some point and also and and maybe this is a thing i don't know if this would be a thing on the pct but i know on the appalachian trail sometimes in shelters and other places where people tend to camp in groups um people leave behind their read copies of something Mm -hmm. so like 20 years ago the first time i ever went to shenandoah national park i drove out i was living in arlington um and i drove out to front royal because I wanted to go. I was just like, so I drove out to Front Royal early, early in the morning and um, hiked a few trails and then drove, you know, back through Sperryville and then up, you know, 95 back to Arlington. And I had decided to, I hiked like maybe a couple miles of the Appalachian Trail because I found it and I found a shelter. And I was just, it was just kind of like this lean to type of place. It wasn't exactly like, you know, sophisticated, but somebody had written, written, uh, left a copy of a Steinbeck novel in like a baggie in the shelter. And I thought that was really, really cool. So, so that I think we, I think we would end up doing that instead of burning stuff, unless we got desperate. (laughs) Would you be upset if I just brought a bunch of romance novels? Uh, Oh gosh. You're bringing all this like, Oh, I can read Ulysses and I bring, Oh God, you, you really think I would bring you. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. 
I know what you think of that, and I also know how big it is. Yeah, I'll, I'll read Smut. Oh, okay, well, well, it'll be a good balance. I'll bring some good stuff. Okay, I wanted to end this. I could have ended it with the books, of course, since it's a literature podcast, but I really wanted to end it with a, a question about her mother because I think this that, that is one of the main points of her journey is really working through the death of her mother. So Strayed says her mother's death had obliterated me. I was trapped by her but utterly alone. She would always be the empty bowl that no one could fill. How did being on the PCT on her mother's 50th birthday help Strayed to heal this wound? There was a sense of trying not to sound like I'm just kind of BSing this answer. I know this whole thing is about her being able to let her mother go. Or, or getting behind, or getting from out behind her mother, because you're that that I was. She would always be the empty bowl that no one could fill. Is such a great line, right? Because her mother was this encompassing force in her life, both positively and negatively. And her relationship with her mother is really complicated, and it's presented in a way that's really nuanced that I really appreciated. Being out there. And this is, she wasn't doing this for her mother either. You know, it's not like one of those things like, I'm here for you, mom. And, you know, it's not that sort of cliche. Yeah, there's just something in the way she's able to use this to let her go. And passing that milestone there, it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't exactly articulate it. What do you think? No, no, it's it's hard. I think... I was just reading through it as I so I cheated because you don't have a copy. Oh, go ahead, reading go ahead. through it as you were as you were talking, just that she reaches, she gets very angry uh, and blames her. She said, you know, f you, that kind of stuff. As as she's thinking about that and the fact that there is this emptiness and she's got to be the one to fill her own self. But she works through all of that, and she also thinks uh, about her relationship with her mother and, and how much her mother had given her and um, some of the conversations at the end. And she says by the end of uh, – or at the night of the 50th – of her 50th birthday, I loved her again. So I think she's able to work through some of those lingering feelings because you probably – I mean she honestly probably felt betrayed, however silly it may seem, you know, feeling betrayed by someone who has died and mm-hmm. left you if you're that close to someone, honestly. And so I think working through some of those feelings that she wasn't working through and, again, being alone and having that space to do it. So I think the wound and even now, again, this is maybe inappropriate because Cheryl's not here, but I feel like it might be a wound that's never completely healed, but it's certainly something that is beginning at that moment. And this is also the moment in the memoir where she talks about how she actually consumed some of her mother's ashes, mm-hmm. which is something that uh, is both a powerful as well as I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Yeah. yeah, situation. But the fact that, you know, she says like her mother is now like with her, you know, metaphorically and literally and, and mm-hmm. is inside her, which, it, yeah, it's that was a crazy image. But it, it was also I don't know if this even really connects. I mean, timeline. She also said that this would have been around the due date of the child that she had. Mm. So it's just interesting how kind of life 
I don't know, you know, the the threes and all of that stuff, how there's kind of a connection there. But I think everything is kind of leading up to it. Like, this is the climax, perhaps, of the novel, but also of her journey with her mother because there have been all these moments, reminders of her mother, the fox, all of this stuff, and then we reach this 50th, and then now, yeah. I I think you used the word catharsis before, Mm -hmm. and I think potentially there's a catharsis here as well as she starts the downward trail towards the uh, Bridge of the Gods. Yeah, and I get the sense, too, that, like, she's coming to that, the mean here and the way she has to look at her mother and her mother's death and everything. And that that I think on one extreme, it's the sort of crawling into one's grief and and having an overwhelming sense of attachment, even though her mother's not here on the other and extreme is completely forgetting and rejecting. And, And she's finding that the mean of moving past all of this to a place where her look at it, her view of it ranges from being able to live and move on to having a healthy relationship with it, you know, Mm -hmm. which again, I don't know from that level of grief, fortunately, knock wood, but I would imagine that is what one of the goals of it is Mm -hmm. because you do have to go on. Yeah, just like the the trail, right? You can't go back. Yeah. You got to go forward. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Sorry to end on a <laughs> downward note, but I think it was important to to end on her relationship with her mother. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we do our? No, no, okay. I think we're good. There's a lot. I mean, honestly, people, yeah. there were there are many other things that I'd love to talk about this with you guys, but we we just don't have the time. I will say just just sort of the bodily humor aspect of it. Like I mentioned, her her propensity. Like I love cheeseburgers too, but like there are parts where like she's spending money on like food that I'm just like that would make me so sick after not eating something after not eating something. <laughs> really. Like yeah, like you know you're eating trail food, right? And all of a sudden you get in there like I'm gonna have like a burger and ice cream and everything. I'd be like I would be on the toilet. For I think hours. yeah, it's yeah because and like, she does get sick at one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just like I'm like wow. But I mean again, I just. I mean, that's not what I focused on, but I was just thinking about that. It was like, you know, she she's just as dumb in places as like Bill Bryson and and Katz are. And I really like that, too. Yeah, I think the only thing that dates itself is because you said that this doesn't date itself. The only thing that does is the fact that she's able to get by for, I don't know, multiple miles on like twenty dollars. Yeah, I know. That's just the prices of things being. What I they was, are. yeah, I was thinking like, oh man, that's and it, I guess you're dropping at least a thousand dollars probably on the stuff, and then maybe mm-hmm. another thousand to have your your packages and stuff. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Logistics, I can totally see it, but you're just like, wow, that's dropping some. some yeah, dough. yeah, you better yeah. be invested. No going yeah. back. Okay, Tom, is this required reading? I think as far as the genre of like travel and even this is genre of like memoir, I think it is. I I think, you know, I I really like I said last episode that a walk in the woods was not unless you really wanted to get it, get yourself started on like travel writing, because I think it's a great intro piece to travel writing. This is good in that regard. I think a walk in the woods is a better travel book. This is a better memoir. And I think that if you're trying to introduce somebody to memoir, that is um, that's not like humorous. There's a lot of humorous memoirs out there, yeah. but you're just it's like a memoir of something that was a struggle. 
Um, I think this is a great, great book. Uh, this is a great, great book for many, many reasons. So I would say, yeah, this is required reading. Yeah, and I think there are many memoirs and books about grief out there. I read one last year, um, mm-hmm. but it was paired with food. So grief and food. So it's it's interesting. You know, we've got grief paired with hiking. But mm-hmm. yeah, I also think that it's required reading. I think it would be an interesting coursework book to do. I think I would do it with upper levels um, just because of the mature themes and things that are going on. Yeah. I, I, Cheryl is just really compelling. She's a compelling person. She's a compelling character. And there are beautifully tragic passages in there and just really strong prose. So, yeah, I absolutely highly recommend it and say that it's required reading. Cool. Well, we do have some feedback and we're going to get to it. So we have a Facebook comment from Robert Ward on our episode 65, which was the art of racing in the rain. He says, I've never owned a cat and only dogs. I'm very much a dog person, but I've always stayed away from films featuring talking dogs. Yet, dude, I do not like now. I don't like like if if you've got like um, like Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey, where the dog is not talking, but there's like a voiceover. I can kind of handle that. But like when they like animate the dog's mouth to make it talk. The only thing I think is acceptable are those Bush's Baked Beans commercials where the dogs like roll that beautiful bean <laughs> footage. Otherwise, I hate talking wow, dogs. Wow, what a pull. Okay. Live live talking dogs. Scooby-Doo's a, a cartoon. I, I love Scooby-Doo. Okay. Back into Robert's comment. He says, I find the premises to be absolutely ridiculous and such. I'm not a fan of this novel or the film adaptation. At one point, Enzo is certain he's being mocked by his owner's love interest because she has thumbs and he doesn't. What? I can respect someone who enjoys books like this, but I thought it was utterly crazy pants. I listen to audiobooks as I work. I'm pretty sure as I worked, I was shouting, what is going on? (laughs) When Enzo was testifying in the trial, I had no idea where this book was going and wasn't going to put it past the author to make the testimony 100% real. And then he shared with us a fun IMDb trivia item for anyone who didn't like the resolution. So this uh, this is from the movie, by the way. Denny, it says Denny manages to get the Marinello Ferrari as a test driver, but in reality, he's about 10 to 15 years too old to ever make it into Formula One. At best, you should be in your teens racing through lesser Formula Two and Three, getting to know the racetracks and winning in Europe. Maybe by the time you're 20 or 21, maybe get a Formula One test team contract, which is a lot of money, friendly connections, or being rich helps. The concept of being in your late 20s or 30s racing in American sports cars clubs and then being plucked out of the blue, bypassing the European racing ladder. There are a lot of typos in this um, IMDb trivia item to go to Italy. Is it best for anyone in the racing business world? Absurd. Well, I guess, Tom, you were right. Yeah. Uh, Chuck Coletta, who tweets at Dr. Pop Culture BGSU tweeted that uh she recommended us as well as book versus movie as fun book related podcasts so thank you very much we have a twitter comment from professor allen so tom doesn't think the ending of a novel narrated by a dog is realistic got it you people are ragging on me you know i think robert ward probably thinks i'm picking all these as revenge books for him personally because he just has some (laughs) troubles with the books that i pick Well, anyways, I liked it. It brought, hey, you know, it was a little bit more positive than what we had been dealing with beforehand. So That's true. That's, true. that's my reasoning mm-hmm. and my defense. 
Okay, Tom. Oh, thanks everyone for writing in. Uh, Tom, yeah. what are we doing next time? This is our third foray into travelogues, hiking, walking, who knows? Yes. So we're moving out of America. Oh. You're going to be setting out on the Santiago de Camp- the Camino de Santiago de Compostela uh, from France into Spain, um, which is uh, more of a religious pilgrimage for many Catholics. Uh, the book is called Off the Road, A Modern Day Walk Down the Pilgrim's Route into Spain. Uh, it is by Jack Hitt. His name is spelled H-I-T-T. So we will be we will be hiking. We will be we will be doing the Camino, and uh, and we will see uh, how. So, and we'll be we'll be kind of crossing into um, looking at the concept of a religious pilgrimage as well as the sort of uh, personal um, secular aspect to it as well. Because Hit, as a writer, is not particularly religious. I think he actually um, defines himself as uh, either agnostic or atheist. So this is uh, this will be a very uh, interesting read. <laughs> and discussion. I should, and discussion, yeah. I should so. think, yeah. And Tom was very kind because he bought that book because there's <laughs> one copy in the library. And I said, Tom, you simultaneously sacrificed for me and betrayed me. Yes. Yes. Okay. So that's it. Yeah. So as always, um, go ahead and don't forget to write us or tweet us or leave comments over on the Facebook group. And until next time, thank you very much for listening and take care. And listen, listen, you don't need that box of condoms, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.